This episode of King of the World contains information about suicide, which may be upsetting to some people. If you're thinking about suicide or would like emotional support, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week across the United States. Just call 1-800-273-8255. And now, to the episode. So one day when I was giving a talk in uh, Shah Jahan's class, one of the, I don't know who it was, they got up and said, Mrs. Khan, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. I said, is it because you are a Muslim that you have nail polish on one hand and you don't have nail polish on the other hand? And first I laughed a little and then I stopped. My mom, who I call Amma, has so many stories like this one, where she's giving a talk to my elementary school class about Islam, usually related to the Eid holiday. I often felt embarrassed when she would give these types of presentations. I mean, how many kids want to hang out with their parents during school? But she'd usually bring snacks to keep people interested. So that was pretty cool. And I said that it's a very nice question that you have asked because it's always good to ask rather than if you would have not asked this question, you would have gone home, told your mother that, you know what, Muslim women can only wear nail polish on their left hand. And it would, she would have talked to somebody else and it would have been a completely false thing which didn't have any meaning. So I said, the reason why I'm doing this is because I'm a crazy person, because I don't know why I do it, but I just do it because I think that these nails look better than these nails. So I said, it has nothing to do with my being a woman. It has nothing to do with my being Pakistani. It has nothing to do with me buying, being a Muslim woman. It's just because I have this crazy habit. Cute story, huh? Regularly scheduled programming will not be seen at this time so that we may bring you the after-school special. Almost like an uh, American Muslim after-school Hallmark special type moment, which I didn't know about until Amma told me this story for this podcast. But after that, I stopped this crazy habit. And now I put nail polish, although I still think the right hand looks ugly, but I still put nail. And I never forget that little kid's thing so that's the kind of little things which you look at somebody and you automatically make an opinion about that person and sometimes that opinion is completely opposite of what it actually is my mom's right opinions can form over little things and very quickly and sometimes those opinions can have grave consequences barely 10 years later in september of 2001 way down in Texas. Come to Texas. It's like a whole other country. Another South Asian Muslim immigrant named Bryce Buyan was starting his workday in a convenience store when he was profiled. Around noon, a man wearing a bandana and sunglasses, carrying a double-barrel shotgun, walked in. Having been robbed before, I immediately opened the cash register and offered him money. Instead of taking it, his gaze remained fixed, and he asked, What are you from? And just a few years after that, in 2005, entrepreneur Akif Rahman was heading home from a trip to Canada when he was profiled. Pulled into uh, the immigration lane where they have the booths and had our passports ready, and three Border Patrol agents approached our car. And at that point, when they came out, the one in the booth uh, basically said, you need to turn off your engine and, and uh, hand over the keys to me. From Rafelion Media, I'm Shah Jahan Khan, and this is the King of the World podcast, a historical, cultural, 
and personal look back at the 20 years since 9-11. Episode 3, Islamophobia. Let's jump back to the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, when everyone was scared, angry, confused, and on high alert. High Muslim alert, that is. Every Muslim is a terrorist, period. Right now. Shut your mouth, I don't want to hear your mouth. It's not that there wasn't fear of Muslims in the U.S. before 9-11, but it's safe to say that a new and potent brand of anti-Muslim suspicion arose very quickly following the attacks and ensuing military response. This sentiment went far beyond those three kids threatening me in my high school hallway and later almost beating me up. This should not be an occasion for ill treatment of Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, South Asians, or others in this country. It is wrong. They are as patriotic as any other Americans and are feeling extremely stressed as a result of this situation. I've already heard some reports of some acts and I roundly condemn them. That's former Wisconsin Senator Russ Feingold at a hearing on September 12th, barely 24 hours after the 9-11 attacks. He was one of many elected officials, including the president, who tried hard to counter anti-Muslim rhetoric in the media and the public. Although what Senator Feingold was saying wasn't intended as such, it basically foreshadowed exactly what was about to happen to many of us. As my dad taught me in a very young age, whatever you do, you, you do it the best you can. Rice Buyan was an officer in the Bangladesh Air Force before coming to the U.S. in 1999. He referred to America as his dream country and was excited to apply his father's work ethic and worldview rigorously from the day he arrived. You start from scratch and once you go up, you will appreciate more that you gradually you know, build up your life and you gradually came to the top. Rice is talking about the same American dream that has been a part of our national identity since the very beginning sold to generations of immigrants before him, including my parents. And so, in 2001, Rice found himself starting his new life in Mesquite, Texas, just outside Dallas, a place he noted to be vastly different from the America of his dreams. Before coming to U.S., the picture I had is a dream country. Everybody is happy. Everybody is, you know, rich. Everybody is having a good life. But then when I went to that part of the country, a very small town, where you can see the sign of poverty everywhere. People are struggling to make their ends meet. Just as Rice had a very specific picture of Americans, a lot of Americans think of doctors, lawyers, and engineers when they think about Asian immigrants. Actually, Asian immigrants like Rice can be found all over the country, and their journeys and struggles are as real as any other blue-collar American you can think of. So, it's no surprise that Rice seemed to get along with the townsfolk as well as he did when he first got to this country. And when they came to the store, I really enjoyed talking to them and learning about their life and vice versa. They were very curious to know more about me, where I came from, what brought me to a small town like Mesquite in Texas. I always enjoyed having that kind of conversation. This quickly became his normal routine. Rice worked super hard all day, every day, dreaming of bigger and better things as he lived out his American dream. He was in school, he had a fiance, and things were certainly looking up. Ten days after the 9-11 attacks, Rice was at work in his convenience store, 
when a stranger burst in with a shotgun and asked him the question that many non-white, non-European-looking immigrants get asked all the time. Where are you from? Before I could say anything more than excuse me, he pulled the trigger from point-blank range. I felt it first, like a million bees were stinging my face, and then I heard it, the explosion. I looked down to the floor and saw blood was pouring like an open faucet from the right side of my head. Frantically and instinctively, I placed both hands on my face, thinking I had to keep my brain from spilling out. And I remember screaming mom on top of my voice, and then noticed the gunman is still standing there. And I thought if I did not appear to be dying, he would shoot me again. The gunman left, and Bryce somehow managed to get himself to the barbershop next door, where he begged three patrons to call 911. Luckily, an ambulance was there in just a few minutes. I started feeling losing consciousness, and images of my, my parents, my siblings, and my fiancé appeared before my eyes, and then a graveyard. And I felt my time was up. I was seeing their faces for the last time, and then I'll be gone from this world. It was a terrifying moment. I was crying. I was begging God that Allah give me a second chance. I don't want to die today. And I promise if you let me live, I would do good things with my life. Against all odds, his prayers were answered. Rice survived. But the incident left him with some pretty horrible consequences. He was kicked out of the hospital the next day for not having insurance. He'd go on to amass $60,000 in medical bills. And he lost his fiancée. Worst of all, though, he lost his vision in one of his eyes. Because of his Air Force background, Rice had always been proud of his extraordinary vision. To have that taken away was its own deeper trauma. He even contemplated suicide. Rice came to find out that his attacker was a white supremacist named Mark Anthony Stroman. Over the course of nearly three weeks right after 9-11, Stroman attacked three people. Rice is the only one who survived. When he was finally arrested, Stroman told police that we were at war and that he had done what every American wanted to do. That he felt a personal need to avenge the 9-11 attacks. That he specifically was targeting people that look Muslim. And that killing Muslims was his patriotic duty. The following year, as I was heading into my last semester as a high school senior, Stroman was headed to trial. I couldn't believe that uh, I would face tremendous hate and uh, violence in my dream country. But once the verdict was announced, I felt little relief. But in the end, I did not feel that that everything ended right there. I felt very sad uh, for my attacker because he failed to realize how he destroyed some human being's life who did nothing wrong to him, to anyone in this country, and also how he destroyed his life and his children's life because he did not show any sorts of remorse. Stroman was convicted of murder and sentenced to death by lethal injection. He was not, however, convicted of a hate crime. At the trial, 
he actually flipped off one of his victim's families. When he got to death row, he referred to himself as an Arab slayer. And he claimed he was a true American. He was a patriot. He should be given medal for his action. And he, he said that he was hunting Arabs. But the truth is that not one of his three victims was Middle Eastern. Just to review, Stroman, a white supremacist, walked into Rice's store and saw a brown Bangladeshi man who he believed to be Arab and directly responsible for 9-11, deserving of his glorified, patriotic American vengeance. Rice's story, while particularly horrific and some might even say unbelievable, was just one of many acts of anti-Muslim violence and Islamophobia in the aftermath of 9-11. According to the Center for American Progress in D.C., Islamophobia can be defined as, quote, an exaggerated fear, hatred, and hostility toward Islam and Muslims that is perpetuated by negative stereotypes resulting in bias, discrimination, and the marginalization and exclusion of Muslims from America's social, political, and civic life, end quote. It can be seen through basic stuff like discrimination or ignorant threats like the kids in my high school, Systems-level things like laws or policies that either overtly or covertly target Muslims or Muslim communities. And finally, actual acts of violence, like assaults, vandalism, arson, shootings, and bombings. Some of these acts would make headlines. Others, barely a peep on the local news, drowned out by the rush to go to war and seek justice. Taking Islamic refugees would be suicide. There's a direct connection between that population and the risk of terror. Should we really be opening our doors at the risk of letting in terrorists? What could possibly go wrong with poor, starving, Muslim, alienated men? You govern a majority Muslim mm -hmm. American city. Are you afraid? Only white people can support what we call Western civilization. In the years following the attacks, Anti-Muslim sentiment across the political and media spheres was at an all-time high. It seemed like anything remotely Muslim was rife with suspicion. Every time you turn on the TV, Islam was deemed responsible for nearly every single extreme act of political violence that took place anywhere in the world. And the idea of the American Muslim seemed to itself be a contradiction. But the media was missing the other side of the story entirely. For decades, organizations like the Muslim Public Affairs Council, or MPAC, have been condemning extremism left and right. Pretty much every single terrorist attack, even marginally associated with Islam that you can think of. These select individuals that have chosen to do things either in the name of Islam or that happen to be Muslim um, are not, in my opinion, a part of my religion. They vehemently condemned the 9-11 attacks after they happened, like literally everyone else held a conference later that year on moderate Muslim voices, condemned the murder of innocent civilians, and even put together a quilt on the first anniversary of 9-11 with all the names of the victims. Real constructive action and symbolic emotional healing and solidarity. They covered it all. My dad, who I call Aga, remember, was the head of our local mosque. He was routinely on local media around Boston, condemning the attacks and telling people violence is not a part of Islam and in a sense, begging people to stop attacking Muslims. I don't even like the term Islamophobia. I call it anti-Muslim sentiment. You know, being anti-Muslim is mostly, mostly about being anti-person of color. Ilhan Kagri is a research fellow with MPAC's DC office, who has been researching the American Muslim community for years, as well as conducting human rights studies in Muslim-majority countries. 
There's a lot of research that says that people who don't know a Muslim or haven't worked with a Muslim are the people that have uh, sort of the most prejudice against Muslims. This all took a serious, lasting toll on American Muslims' sense of safety and security. People thought twice about appearing visibly Muslim, whether that meant shaving off facial hair or worrying about being harassed for their hijabs. But some stood tall, without even really thinking twice about changing what they looked like. Remember how my aunt and cousins were visiting from Pakistan when 9-11 happened? My cousin Meru remembers a small but powerful act of resistance from her mom, my mom's elder sister, Umbrakala. We were very scared. We then later on started hearing stories about uh, some sick guy because he had a beard got attacked uh, as people thought he was Muslim. And my mother, um, she would refuse to wear Western outfits and she would just wear the Pakistani shalwar kameez and we would keep on telling her that mama please don't go in the malls wearing shalwar kameez but she wouldn't listen soon after 9-11 they flew home from boston from logan airport where the first two planes were hijacked it was a little weird because when we went there was actually nobody at the airport there were these big dogs sniffing away and uh, when we went into the elevator we realized that everybody just left the elevator when we uh, went in so that was disturbing It's hard to pin down like one person, place, or thing that fed the spike in Islamophobia post 9-11, but the media environment and the war on terror probably had something to do with it. The FBI's own hate crime statistics show an exponential jump in anti-Muslim hate crimes immediately following the attacks, from 28 in the year 2000 to 481 in 2001. That's a fucking 1,717% increase. And the thing is, it sort of settled back around 150. It never went back to what it once was. The next spike would be, no surprise, during the Trump presidency. Do you think Islam is at war with the West? I think Islam hates us. Islamophobia was forcing Muslims to confront their identity in new ways in the years after 9-11. Even if they didn't want to, and I certainly didn't, it seemed the public was doing it for them. It also seemed that the public had trouble differentiating between Muslims and people who were just, like, brown. Poor Sikhs, the Sikh community, took a lot of flack. They were targeted because of their turbans. In in Kansas, there were those Indian uh, gentlemen who weren't even Muslim. They were shot because they, you know, somebody thought they were Iranian. Remember that guy who shot Rice Bouyan in the face? He actually killed two other people, one of whom was a Hindu immigrant. And again... Stroman told police he wanted to kill Arabs to take revenge for 9-11, but instead shot Rice, a Bangladeshi, and killed two other South Asians, a Pakistani and an Indian. What may be surprising to you is that, according to the Gallup Religious Tolerance Index, Muslim Americans are among the most integrated religious groups in the U.S. And if you think of the thousands of violent things that happen in the U.S. every year, like, for instance, white supremacist violence or even just gun deaths, it should be a no-brainer that there's just no real connection between simply being Muslim and being violent any more than there is in, like, I don't know, wearing leather jackets and being violent. But what happened consistently following 9-11 was that every time a Muslim did something violent or was even suspected of it, all of us were under fire. It was all our fault. It's like, not all Muslims are terrorists, but if you're a terrorist, you're a Muslim. That that was the ideology that you know, after 9-11. Every time there was some killing somewhere, 
it didn't matter if it was terrorist or not terrorist. You know, it um, if a Muslim did it, the rest of us would like, oh, dear Lord, how are we going to handle this now? We're going to have to come out. We're going to have to say we don't support this. Everybody has to make public statements. I can't tell you the number of times there would be a breaking news incident somewhere in the world. And I'd either mutter to myself or to someone else that, oh, I hope it's not a Muslim. Because I knew the same fucking cycle would start all over again. The truth is, out of thousands of violent incidents in the U.S., there were about 160 acts of violence perpetrated by Muslims in the first decade following 9-11. 160. In 10 years. If you look at actual FBI reports about domestic terrorism from that time period, Muslims are hardly ever mentioned. But that's definitely not what it felt like. At least, not to me. Did you ever walk through the hall at school when the other children were in their rooms? Did you ever listen to the sounds that come from the rooms? What's happening inside? Other than when my mom would come to school and talk about Ramadan or fasting, I can basically remember a one-week unit on Islam as a high school freshman, sandwiched somewhere between ancient Egypt and the Dark Ages in our oh-so-vague world history class. Basically, that means I didn't learn anything substantial in school about Islamic history outside of the Ottoman Empire. Nothing about Islamic philosophy, art, or music. And many of my Muslim friends say the same thing in schools that they went to across the U.S. I just want to take a moment to share a little bit about the American Muslim community. There are about three to four million of us here in the States, and we are a very diverse group racially and ethnically. 40% of us identify as white, 30% is Asian, and 20% is black. Some of us are very religious and some of us are not religious at all, just like followers of any religion. We're also a very young population that is mostly immigrant. The immigrant and brown narrative generally takes center stage, but one thing to know, and one thing I definitely was not taught in schools, is that Islam has been in America since the very beginning, like before George Washington. While there's some discrepancy about whether Muslims were first here in the 16th, 14th, or even as early as the 12th century, one thing is clear. Somewhere between 10 to 50% of the 10 million African slaves brought here were Muslims. Muslims, black Muslims in particular, literally built this country and have been here for generations, if not centuries. One of the earliest things that I remember learning in Sunday school about Islam was that Muslims are supposed to be forgiving, kind, and humble people. Perhaps something else that was lost in the post-9-11 climate of fear. And that was definitely true of Rice Bouillon. If you can believe this, he didn't just survive a vicious act of anti-immigrant terror, one that was intended to kill him. But he led an international campaign to save his attacker, Mark Anthony Stroman, from death row. Rice says his Islamic beliefs gave him the strength to forgive. He would eventually use that strength to create a nonprofit called World Without Hate, which works to prevent and disrupt hate and violence through storytelling and empathy. Some of our current priorities are the launch of National Healing and Reconciliation Initiative, helping to pass 
a 9-11 hate crime resolution in Congress, with the 20th anniversary of 9-11 approaching and continued hate and violence on the rise, we believe sharing stories like mine to help build more awareness around hate and violence and inspire people to treat one another as humans first. To date, Rice and his organization have worked with more than 250,000 people across the world. After 9-11, U.S. government security hawks started revisiting national security frameworks in an attempt to consolidate and expand power. We know that prevention works. The Patriot Act gives us the technological tools to anticipate, adapt, and outthink our terrorist enemy. That's former U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft talking about uniting and strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism, also known as the Patriot Act, a behemoth 342-page, 150-section document proposed the week of and in response to 9-11. The Patriot Act redefined terrorism and sentencing, sometimes without statutes of limitation, and allowed for foreign intelligence techniques to be used domestically. Basically, it made it easier for the government to spy on ordinary citizens. And since its inception, that has basically meant American Muslims. Ashcroft and the rest of the Bush administration pushed this legislation through Congress, who had little or no time to read it, let alone debate it. Remember when Bush said, you were either with us or against us? That same rhetoric was used to imply that any members of Congress that didn't pass it would be blamed for any future terrorist attacks on the U.S. One provision in the law lets the government go into your house while you're away, search through, and even take your things, and not tell you until later. The American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, said that while most Americans think it was created to catch terrorists, it actually just turns regular citizens into suspects. A commercial from the ACLU at that time warns of this overreach of power. Thanks to provisions in the Patriot Act, the government can get information you thought was private without your knowledge or consent. It's actually kind of hilarious, showing naked people in situations where one would hope they're wearing clothes. Now there's a push to make these powers permanent. And that could leave any one of us exposed. Like on a tractor or in the middle of an important business meeting. Amend the Patriot Act. We deserve to be both safe and free. Although the commercial certainly takes visual liberties, the crux of it is pretty right on. It soon became clear that the Patriot Act was targeting Muslims, particularly immigrant Muslim men. And by 2005, even the conservative figures from the Michigan Journal of Race and Law were pretty staggering. 3,000-plus deportations with more than 13,000 in the process of deportation. 15,000 detained or arrested. 50,000 fled the country in fear. 90,000 had been interviewed, interrogated, or raided by the FBI. 100,000 had been electronically surveilled. And over 140,000 people had been interviewed, fingerprinted, or photographed at ports of entry or designated immigration offices. And that's just the stuff that was actually documented. It wasn't just at airports where Muslims were being profiled or detained under the Patriot Act. It was essentially the same at ports of entry like the Canadian border near Detroit, where in 2005, a young American and, I guess, visibly Muslim man, his wife, and kids were heading home after a trip to Toronto. 
let me ask you something. Uh, you know, I've had several incidents before this, right? Do you want me to get into the specific one that occurred that really kind of led to the main one, if you will? Is that what you want me to start with? Or do you want me to set it up with? Uh, I would you know, be happy. Whatever is comfortable for you. I mean, is whatever you think makes sense in terms of the progression for people to kind of like understand. Because the stop where I was, uh, you know, where we're talking about was after probably a year of several different stops at airports versus driving in, right? This is my first drive in uh, from Canada, which is why it was possibly why it was more in, you know, involved. So I'm sure for a lot of you driving to and from the Canadian border is like not a big deal at all. The hardest part is the line, the possible inconvenience of having to pull over, take a couple minutes out of your day, make sure your documents check out, maybe pop your trunk open, and then you're free to go. Well, I wish this was the experience us Muslims have at the border. Unfortunately, so many of us have a horrible travel story or know someone who does. A story involving U.S. border security or the TSA. Akif Vermont's case is a particularly outrageous one. I, I uh, identify myself as uh, an American first, uh, and of course, uh, I am uh, a Muslim. And uh, you can see from my my face, and I have a beard, and uh, you know, someone that looks at me will, will can tell you right away that I'm you know most likely am, am a Muslim if they're familiar with with uh, my heritage and, and our religion. On May eighth of two thousand five, Akif was traveling back from Toronto with his family when they were stopped at the American Canadian border in Detroit by U.S. immigration officers. After what seemed like an unusually long wait, the agent asked him to turn off the car. So, you know, I turned off my engine and uh, handed him the keys. Uh, obviously, seeing that there was, you know, three uniformed Border Patrol agents approaching the car. And I was asked if I had any uh, weapons uh, on me or in the car. Of course, I don't. I don't have any weapons. I don't own any weapons. And I told him that I don't. Uh, and then they approached the car and they asked me to step out of the car. They, you could tell this was something uh, that they were serious about. And I think, you know, the question about having a weapon in the car or not was highly unusual for me. Um, handing over the keys with the car off, highly unusual, right? And, and uh, you could see that they were approaching me with caution. Like you'd expect an officer, hand on the gun, you know, step out of the car. And then I was escorted by these three uniformed Border Patrol agents from my car into the, the Border Patrol office. And I left my wife and my two young kids behind in the car, not knowing what was going to happen to them and them not knowing what was going to happen to me. See, in addition to public scrutiny of people with Muslim-sounding names and Muslim-looking faces, whatever the hell that means... There was actually governmental and administrative support for all sorts of pretty dystopian things. Stuff going on behind closed doors. The extent of which we are still finding out almost 20 years later. There was surveillance on the Muslim community being done, sometimes by paid informants. Something we'll talk about more in a couple episodes. There were punishments based on nothing more than alleged suspicious activity. A.K.A. deportations of folks back to countries they sometimes hadn't lived in for decades. And... Like in Akif's case, extended, terrifying, and unjustified detention of primarily Muslim men. I wasn't really told what was going on. I was put up against the wall. You know, one of the agents asked again about whether I had a weapon on me, you know, and I was pushed up against the wall. I was frisked, searched, uh, handled in a rough manner, uh, something that has never happened to me in my life 
to that point. And um, shoes taken off, uh, just a full-on search uh, that you would expect, uh, like you'd see on TV from you know someone who was a criminal who was being arrested or going to be arrested, right? And then I was handcuffed. First handcuffed to uh, you know a chair and a bench. You know they just handcuffed me and said, "Well, you're gonna you know really didn't say anything." The Supreme Court eventually ruled that it's illegal to indefinitely detain anyone without cause. But it was nearly impossible to challenge the legality of surveillance and most things related to the Patriot Act. Plus, it's not like Akif was in a position to defend himself at all, as the agents continued to hold and repeatedly grill him with the same questions over and over and over. What was he doing in Canada? Why was he there? Why was he traveling back? Questions about his identity. His name. You could kind of understand that there was something that they thought I was, or they, they felt that I was some person that I wasn't. And this is also during the time when, you know, renditions were very um, frequent, right? Think about post 9-11, you read all these stories about people getting picked up in airports and taken out of the country and God knows what's happening. Whether Iraqi, Pakistani, or just non-white Muslim, it's important to remember that Akif's experience was in spite of the fact that he's an American citizen. He's supposed to have rights, Right as an American, you feel like, you know, as long as you've done good and you've done the right thing, honest person, you haven't done anything wrong, you don't have any criminal record behind you, you should be allowed back into your country. I didn't know how much longer I was going to be detained, and I don't know if I was ever going to be released. And remember, his wife and kids were in the car, and he had no idea what was going on with them. What were they thinking? Were they hungry? Where were they? Uh, what are they being told? And what are they thinking is happening to me, right? And I had no indication, right? No matter how many times I asked uh, the border agent, you know, what was going on, he just said, they're waiting for you. Uh, and, you know, you basically don't need to worry about them right now. They're, they're fine. After four long hours of being handcuffed, interrogated, and panicked beyond anything he'd ever felt, Akif found the courage within himself to speak his mind directly to one of the agents. The questions that were being asked were around what I thought about 9-11, uh, whether I knew about any kind of terrorist financiers, uh, what I would do if I knew someone who funded terrorism. You know, strange questions uh, that I found uh, were very private, personal, and, and didn't really kind of make sense in the context of trying to get home from a family trip in Canada. And so I expressed that and I said, you know, even if I did, I don't think this is a setting that I would tell you in and took a little bit more of a, a more direct line because I, I was just, you know, I didn't know where, where all this was going. And I think he could tell because he was face to face that, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who is in any, in any way or shape a threat to entering the country or whatever they thought. According to Akif, this changed the vibe of his interrogator, who then ordered him to be released from handcuffs. The agent then went to actually check on Akif's wife and kids and let him know that his family was doing okay. It would still be another two hours, though, before he was officially released. And when he asked why he was detained and treated the way that he was, their answer was simple, cold, and direct. We don't have to tell you anything. What, what I would want people to take away from my experience uh, and, and story is that, you know, we've got to implement policies and process 
that actually are targeting what we really want versus just banding and stereotyping a group of people into a block and treating every single person who's Muslim, who may be uh, coming into the U.S. for you know living or work as some sort of a threat. With the help of the ACLU, Akif and several other plaintiffs filed a formal lawsuit against the FBI and CBP. They were eventually successful in taking his name off the so-called terrorist screening database, but the fight against wrongful detentions and legal surveillance and targeting of Muslims continues. One of the worst parts about stories like Akif's is the purgatory, or like being in limbo time that you have to endure while it's going on. You lack power, agency, access to a lawyer, or a phone call, or any of the things that we learn in school are integral and unique things that make America unlike other countries. This really puts the idea of American exceptionalism into question. It is this word exceptionalism which has been repeated throughout American history that we are the exceptional country uh, that at this point I think makes us a, a danger to ourselves. I can't give you hard data about exactly how much of my brain was impacted by Islamophobia type shit during this period of my life or for that matter how much it still is today. I can say that it had a significant impact on my mental health. Hearing stuff like Akif and Rice's stories definitely kept me awake at night. It made me fear not just for my own safety, but that of my friends and family as well. It was 2004, and I was still barely removed from a serious suicide attempt. Yeah, maybe I was trying to go to college again, but I was pretty checked out. I was going to AA and NA meetings on and off, but I was still getting high. All the time. And going to the mosques was even harder now because I still hadn't resolved like where I fit into the idea of being an American Muslim man. I felt farther from it than ever before. It's not that I was getting any real pressure from anyone to be a better Muslim or whatever, more of what a lot of us so-called third culture kids go through where we don't exactly fit in anywhere. Like what Rania Mustafa was talking about in the last episode with the whole identity confusion thing. Part of my confusion was a lack of connection to and powerlessness around news stories about Iraq and Afghanistan. Stories where Muslims were always the bad people, and Islam was a force of evil in the world that needed to be eradicated. These people live to kill us, they live to attack us, they live to horrify us, and when people pull back, that's exactly what they want. I was like constantly on the defensive, ready to get into arguments with anyone who even uttered a peep about Islam or Pakistan. I remember this one English class I took where the first book we had to read was about soldiers during the Vietnam War. And naturally, our discussions would come to what we felt about Iraq. One kid in particular kept saying, well, doesn't Saddam love Shi'ara law? And like, didn't he gas his own people? We should be bombing the shit out of Iraq so they don't get us here. I would try my best to avoid talking about it. But inevitably, the teacher would call on me and I'd give some sort of bumbled and confused answer. My face would get all hot and blushy, and I'd never be satisfied with what I said. Just always left with the feeling that the other kids thought I was an anti-American, possible terrorist or something. I wasn't sure who I was, except in opposition to who I wasn't. In fact, by 2004, I wasn't even really sure what name to use anymore. That sounds a little weird, so let me explain. My full name is Malik Shah Jahan Muhammad Khan. Malik is also my dad's name. And it's technically my first name. So Malik came up with two or three names, which I'm not going to say over here. 
बिकॉज मे बी समबडी हु इज लिसनिंग इट्स देयर नेम और समथिंग बट दोज व द नेम्स विच आई एम सॉरी टू से जस्ट डिडेंट अपील टू मी एंड वाइट दे डिडेंट अपील टू मी दैट ऑल्सो आई विल नॉट से आई टेल यू लेट बट एवरी डे मलिक वुड कम अप विद अ क्रेजी नेम एंड आई सेड नो 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 वन डे ऑल ऑफ अ सडन आई डोंट नो वॉट केम इन इज हैड एंड ही सेड दैट हैव अट शाहजहान एंड आई सेड यस What Amma means by this is that everyone technically called me by my middle name, Shah Jahan, but that itself was changed in a couple of ways. I don't remember when it started happening, but no one seemed to be able to pronounce it growing up, and I guess I was too embarrassed to correct them. So, I became Saj to all my hometown friends from Acton and Boxboro. So, with your friends, uh your high school friends, you are Nooj, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and with oh. my with my high school friends, I'm Saj. Yeah. Like I just wondered what is the distinction for you between Nurj oh. and Nurjahan? <laughs> and where, so where are you on that whole thing? Oh, yeah, it's so it? hard. I think Yeah. I think that even goes with the identity piece, right? Of like very clearly of how I even say my name and introduce myself depends mm. on who I'm talking to. Mm. Even switching. like Oh, huge code switch, but also like even when people ask me where I'm from, If I say Pakistan or Pakistan, I don't say Pakistan is, anymore. I straight up say Pakistan. I, yeah, I no, no, have tried to make this. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I've tried to make that switch more often, but like eight times. What do you out think that's it, about? What like the difference of saying Pakistan or Pakistan yeah. is the same of if you say hookah or hookah or like all these other dumb like mm-hmm. can I have a chai tea latte or just. Yeah, it's just like I think it's become a more politicized issue than maybe it needs to be, but it also is important. I don't know, it's complex. I think mm. with my name, that's been a huge struggle forever because as a kid, I super disliked my name because it was complicated and like Me too. Me too. You had to and yeah, you had to memorize where you were in the attendance list. So like when you see their face get confused, you're like, "Oh, that's me." Like I'm Norchahan. I'm that one yeah. you're going to show. Even though like both of our names are very phonetically spelled. And they're pretty badass. They are badass names. You remember the title of the show, I hope. King of the World? Well, that's my name. And Norjahan's means light of the world. I challenge you to find more badass names in AB during the 1990s or early 2000s. That's why looking back, it's like extra sad that both of us felt weird about our names. If you were taught like just a second of phonics, then you should be able to handle it. It's not yeah, like we have Benjamin. silent letters in there. Yeah. Shah Jahan, right? It's oh, for sure. Hard. Yeah. As a kid, Nurj, like that nickname came 100% from Shah. It came from yours because Emily Ann is the first person who shortened my name and she got that because Eric wow, you were you remember Shaj. that. Oh yeah. That's you would amazing. remember where your name came. So I was already Norge before I entered school. Wow. And then Emily knew me in school, so that's where Norge started. Mickey Wax was the first person to call me Norgee. When she put an e on there, whatever. As a kid in the Desi community, I couldn't say my own name, so I someone asked me my name, I said it was Nunahan, that's where Nuna came from. So all those names are where that is. Now, as I grew up, even like how I like Norjahan, people ask me is it Norjahan or Norjahan? And I'm like, really it's neither. So like, and that's a very recent development in my life in the past 2 years when people ask me which like is it Norj or Norj I give them the whole 5 minute explanation of like actually it's neither of them I've americanized my name to Norjahan it's actually two separate words it's Noor and Jahan and we're combining it so you're called if you want to do Norj or Norj because neither of them is actually 
the proper pronunciation of my name. And I give them the whole background. This interview was literally the first time Nuna and I had ever talked about this stuff. And it just kept getting more and more incredible for me to hear her perspective. I went by Saj all through high school and was even okay with the Saj-Shah Jahan dichotomy when it came to my family and the Pakistani community. But it seemed to really become an issue when I went to UMass Amherst, that first time I tried to go to college. Remember in episode two where I was placed in that multicultural dorm as soon as I got to campus? Well, kids asked me right away why I didn't go by Shah Jahan. There were other kids from the Pakistani community on campus that knew me as Shah Jahan. And when I tried to go between the two different worlds, my neat little partitions started to crash together and overload my weeded out brain. It was too much. As a kid, I just like responded to anything. And I think the only person who called me Noor Jahan were Amma or Aga when I was in trouble. Like, otherwise, it was Nuna or it was Norj. The most me thing that I've done with my name is, I don't know if you know this story, but it's pretty Tell good. Um, I, when I, so then coming out of high school, I was like, okay, college, like I can have a new identity. If I want to have like a different name, that's what I did too, time, man. And I can go with it. I went so with Malik. I, Amazing. That makes sense. (laughs) I went to college orientation. And in orientation, I told everyone my name was Tina. Just full swipe took Amma's name. And I was like, let's just go with this. Let's go with Tina. Like, maybe that'll be my new. Yeah. In orientation, I just was like, my name is Norjan. I go by Tina. Because people do that all the time. You know, my name is whatever. I go by this. No one batted an eyelash at it. So I did that for the the three-day orientation. Then I got home and I was like, nah, that feels weird. So when I went back to college, I told everyone that my name was Norjahan. And there was still like a sprinkling of people who called me Tina. Then when I joined the South Asian groups, I was like, oh, they can recognize my name. But I still want it to be shorter. So I'll go by Noor. So all the people who I met who are South Asian and Northeastern call me Noor or Tina. And then everyone else calls me Norj. Then I was at a party once and a guy asked me my name and I said Norj. And he was like, did you say Lore? And I was like, yeah, sure. I look like my name is Lore, like short for Lord. And I just went with it. And he thought my name was Lore for three years of college. (laughs) I did not tell him until I was walking down the street. And I, there, he was sitting on the porch, and I was walking with some of my friends. He goes, hey, Lord. I was like, Tim, my name <laughs> is Norge, and it's not your fault. It's my fault. I just never corrected you. And he was like, okay, and we never spoke again. Nuna touches on something important. A lot of immigrant kids like us have been encouraged or even forced to take on, like, westernized versions of our names. Sometimes it's at school or at work. Sometimes when you're ordering food on the phone. And the thing is... Your name can have some serious implications and lead to, like, discrimination and othering. Like, my producer Asad remembers a time a few years ago when he was trying to book an Airbnb. The hosts denied his request. So, hours later, his wife Erica put in a request for the exact same place just to see what happened. Well, it was accepted. This kind of stuff happens so much, particularly to people of color, that in 2016... Airbnb established an anti-discrimination policy and team. The last piece I'll say on names is that where names comes up the most currently in my brain is like, we're not pregnant. We're not having kids anytime soon. But like, we would like to have kids is like, Mm. what are those, what are those names going to look like? And especially when I got married, I was like, I don't want to get rid of my last name because it's really important to me. But most likely our kid's last name will be Christensen. So I'm like, I'd like their first name to have some sort of 
Pakistani Muslim mm. something to it. So they remember that. And one of my favorite professional teaching professional developments I attended, there was a guy there who he, I want to say has an Irish background and his wife is Latina. Um, and he talked about this whole thing of, Oh, I'm going to get the term of like intentional disruptions of mm. like having, so he named his kid like Pedro O'Connell or something like that, where like a super Latin name, super Irish last name. And he was like, I want people to look at that name and be like, what? And like have to re-question of like what they think this person should look like. And he was like, this kid's name is Pedro. He has red hair. Like you would never think that. But like we have to force those intentional disruptions all the time. And I think that's what I want with my kids of like my – I think eventually when I do change it, it will be hyphenated. My last name will be – or my name will be Nurjahan Khan dash Christensen. But my kids will – last name will be Christensen. But I want their first name to be like ethnic as hell. That's super cool, man. Yeah, but still pronounceable because I do think I still have that trauma. <laughs> but like something that's like something like that where I or at least their middle name to be something where it's like they don't not even they but other people know that like this is this is regular now to have those names. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I want it to be both pieces because cool. they are both pieces. They are, man. Or they will be. When I went back to college for the third time in the fall of 2004, I was still Malik. I was officially two years out of high school and was going to therapy two times a week. I mentally prepared for what would probably be another semester gone up in a cloud of smoke, or a cascading series of microaggressions about my name, my place in American, Pakistani, and Muslim culture would probably reach another breaking point. One day, after my morning class, I grabbed some food from the dining hall and made my way to the library when this Daisy kid in a black leather jacket and long hair pulled into a ponytail burst into the room. I immediately recognized him from Sunday school at the Wayland Mosque. So my name is Basim Usmani. Me and Shah Jahan met up probably way back in 1998 and we formed a band together in probably 2005. That band would forever change both of our lives and take us on a journey that most kids only dream about. Next time on King of the World. Indiana Jones, the monk, like eating the monkey heads. And I remember getting that a lot when I was a kid too. Like, do you, does your family eat monkey heads? Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about the people on King of the World, check out our episode guides. You can see pictures of me and my family, information about Muslims in America, and even pictures of my Ford Windstar. You can find those on our website, refelion.com. King of the World is a production of Refelion Media. Today's show was produced by me and Asad Butt, and with sound design and sound mixing by Mark Anato. Lindsay Gamble is our associate producer. We had production help from Isabel Havens, Mona Baloch, and Erica Reif. Theme song by me, with production help, mixing, and mastering by Nick Sampiello. Original music by Simon Hutchinson. Thanks again to my family, Amma, Aga, Mariam, and Nuna. And special thanks to Rais Buyan, Ilan Kagri, Akif Rahman, my cousin Meru, and Basim Asmani. We'll have links in the show notes to learn more about each of them. Thanks again for listening. I'm Shah Jahan Khan. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. 
They both come in giftable boxes with savings up to $46 and free shipping for a limited time. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. 